Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. So let us pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this evening, this opportunity to be in community, to dive into your word, and to allow you to speak to us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit, anoint this place and this time, bless us each in the ways we most need it, and speak to us uniquely and specifically in the ways that we are seeking your voice and your guidance, Lord the ways we need comfort and direction. You know us better than we know ourselves, and so you knew we would be here tonight. Help us to be attentive to the specific message you have in store for each one of us, and to allow this word to edify us, to challenge us, and to comfort us in the ways that we are doubtful or afraid. We ask, Lord, anything distracting us or calling our attention away from this time, we lay those things at your feet. We ask that you remove them by your power and the power of the name of Jesus. Any distractions from the enemy, that you would break those, cast out, bind and renounce them, and that you would bring your healing and your presence to each one of us tonight. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come on in. Have a seat. We are in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9 tonight. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which instead of the 18th Sunday in Ordinary Time, it falls on the Feast of the Transfiguration. So we're going to read this account. We actually read this exact account on the second Sunday of Lent. So you may have some notes. You may find this a little bit familiar. But we always return to this, even though we have repeated gospels, because the Lord speaks in new ways. We might notice different details. Uh, it might be completely new to us tonight, even though we heard it just a few short months ago. So we're going to read verses 1 through 9. First time through, just get a picture for what is being said. Okay, so on the context of Matthew, we've been dealing with the parables in the parable discourse of Matthew chapter 13. We're now jumping ahead a few chapters. And so Jesus has just traveled north with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, where we have this exchange between him and Peter, where he announces that Peter is rock, and upon this rock he will build his church. Okay, so we're establishing the authority of the church and the head of the church with St. Peter. And then coming away from there, he takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain somewhere in the northern region of Israel uh, near Galilee or near Caesarea Philippi, and we have this very well-known scene of the transfiguration that appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so this is the account according to Matthew. If you can picture that scene, they're up on a high mountain, uh, the three uh, closest disciples to Jesus and Jesus himself in this kind of mystical experience they have of Jesus revealing his glory to them. So, first time through, just kind of get a sense for the passage. Maybe close your eyes, paint this picture in your mind as if you've never heard it before. The Transfiguration of Jesus. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, 
Moses and Elijah appeared to them, conversing with him. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud cast a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell prostrate and were very much afraid. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and do not be afraid. And when the disciples raised their eyes, they saw no one else but Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, Do not tell the vision to anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read this one more time. This time through, I invite you to listen to the words as they are read. Try and Now that you have this image in your mind, try and focus particularly on the words and see if there's any word that strikes you, any detail that stands out to you, resonates with you personally. This is not to theologically interpret the text. This is to see what speaks to you in a unique and specific way. So it reminds you of a memory, sparks something in your mind, goes on a train of thought. Take that as the Lord speaking to you directly and begin to reflect on those things. What is the Lord trying to say to me through this particular word or phrase? Why is this standing out? What might he be compelling me to do? So second and final time through Matthew 17 verses 1 through 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, conversing with him. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud cast a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell prostrate and were very much afraid. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and do not be afraid. And when the disciples raised their eyes, they saw no one else but Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, Do not tell the vision to anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now I invite you to reflect back on this passage, especially the details that stood out to you and any questions that this reading arose in you. And we're going to take about the next 10 minutes at your tables. Just share what those things are, what stood out to you and why. If you're at a smaller table, feel free to join one of the ones up here or create your own table in the back if you want. Um, but we're going to take about the next 10 minutes to do that, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion and for questions. Thank you.
So before we um, get into questions and, and our reflections, I want to give you a little bit of, of or remind you a little bit of the Old Testament context of what's going on here. I talked about this when we had this reading for the second Sunday of Lent, so you might remember. But there's a, a correlation here between Jesus and Moses. Okay, and it's no mistake that Moses is one of the figures that appears here. But in the Old Testament, if you remember in the book of Exodus, after Moses leads the people out of Egypt and into the wilderness, they end up at Mount Sinai. And when they get to Mount Sinai, this uh, glory cloud of God, in Hebrew called Shekinah, it's this presence of God, the Father, descends down upon Mount Sinai. And it has these sounds of trumpets and thunder and lightning, and this fiery cloud descends upon the mountain, kind of overshadowing the entire mountain. Okay? And so Moses, he goes up to the base of the mountain, and he brings three people with him. He brings Aaron, his brother, who is going to be the high priest. And then he brings two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. And they come with Moses to the base of the mountain. And then Moses goes up and has this experience with God. He receives the Ten Commandments. He comes down. There's a whole golden calf incident and all of that. And then Moses continues to go back and forth and kind of be with God on the mountain, but also in the temple, once the temple is built, or sorry, the tabernacle the uh, kind of glorious presence of God descends upon the tabernacle and Moses goes in and out. And Moses, when he would go into the presence of the Lord, he would come out and his face would shine. Do you remember this? And when his face would shine, the people would get so terrified that they made him wear a veil to cover his face because it was believed that if you looked upon the face of God, you would die. That was a very common belief at the time of, of, of Moses. In fact, I think God himself says it. I think it's in Exodus 33. Exodus 33, 20. He's talking to Moses. Moses is saying, let me see your glory. And God says, I'm going to pass before you. You can look at me after I pass. But he says in verse 20, but you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. So there's a common interpretation of that, that you would just drop dead if you were to see the, see the face of God. And there's actually evidence of that in the Old Testament. When people would unworthily enter the tabernacle and go to where the Ark of the Covenant was, where it was believed the presence of God dwelled, if they were unworthy, they would drop dead. And that continued in the practice of the high priest entering behind the Holy of Holies in the temple, and they would tie a rope with jingle bells around him. So if he dropped dead, they would hear it, and they would drag his body out, and they would get a new high priest. That's how powerful the presence of God was. That's how awesome and wonderful the presence of God is that you were not meant to approach him unworthily. Okay, but we have Jesus now painting a lot of the same imagery. He goes up to the top of a mountain. He takes three people with him, one of whom is going to be, in, a, in essence, the new high priest of this new church he has just instituted the chapter before. And the other two are brothers. And Nadab and Abihu, you may not remember this, but in Numbers chapter 3, there's a little notation uh, this happens elsewhere in, in Scripture, but uh, the, his sons, Nadab and Abihu, this is in verse 4 of Numbers 3, they died in the presence of, Lord, in the, of the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. They offered an unauthorized fire, some kind of sacrifice. And I like the comparison of that or that note because it reminds me of Luke chapter 9, verse 54. On the way, they enter a Samaritan village, but that they reject their reception. And so James and John saw this, and they asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? 
Okay, so this fiery tendency that got the same Old Testament kind of prefigurement characters in trouble, James and John have kind of that same fiery tendency. Okay, so do you see the similarities and the parallels here? What Matthew is trying to do is to communicate Jesus is the new Moses. Because in Deuteronomy 18.15, there was a promise that Moses made that a prophet like me will one day come and to him you will listen. And so Matthew's trying to paint the picture clearly that Jesus is this person that you've been waiting for. A prophet like Moses, a promised Messiah. And not only that, do we not only offer Moses, but we offer the other highest, most important of prophets revered after Moses is Elijah. And so these two figures were often quoted by rabbis or paired to represent the law and the prophets, the entirety of the Torah, the law summarized in Moses who received the law from God and who was believed to have written the Torah, the five books himself, and then all of the prophets summarized in the beginning of the prophetic uh, uh, mission by Elijah. And it was believed that when Elijah would return, because Elijah gets assumed into heaven in 2 Kings chapter 2, it was believed that when he returned, it would usher in the messianic age. It would be a sign that the Messiah was coming. So you see all this imagery at work, okay? Lots of visions of heaven involve these kind of glimmering figures in white, all of this. So Matthew is being very clear here about what is happening, about who Jesus is. And then not only that, we have the eyewitness testimony of God actually speaking through that glorious cloud, and saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Okay, so we have all of that Old Testament context to know, to see why this is so important. But another reason this is so important is because, I mean, we have to ask ourselves, why be transfigured? Like, why? What's the point? Is Jesus just showing off? You know, he's having a hard time and just really wanted to do something amazing and just really wanted to, like, buck up the troops. Think about what happens right before this. This is a roller coaster of events. Jesus goes out of his way 25 miles north to say that he's come to institute a church and that Peter would be in charge. And then immediately after that, he predicts his first prediction of his passion. He tells them he's going to suffer. Peter then rejects him and says, No, Lord. This can't happen. And he says, get behind me, Satan. So first, ruler of the church, get behind me, Satan. Roller coaster for Peter. There's a whole bunch of emotions happening here. And then he tells all the disciples, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. That's not the image they probably had of this glorious Messiah who was going to come and usher in this messianic age in the line of Moses and Elijah and all these great times that they had heard about and read in the Old Testament about the wonders of the kingdom that was created then by King David after, after Moses and after Elijah and everything that they had done, all that it had led to. That was probably not their image. And so in part three of St. Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica, he answers the question, why was Jesus transfigured? And the reason is because he wanted to give them a glimpse of the glory that was to come. After all of this doubt, all of this fear, all of this roller coaster of emotion, him finally revealing that he's going to suffer, the confusion, the, the doubt, the worry, the anxiety they probably felt, he wanted to give at least these three key leaders of the disciples a glimpse of the glory that was to come. To say, all right, you need to hang on. I'm going to reveal my glory to you this one and only time before I die so that you know I am who I really say that I am. 
so that you can keep fighting in the moments where it's darkest, where it's most difficult. The thing that really stood out to me in this passage, I'd never noticed it before. It's in verse 6. Sorry, verse 7. So the disciples, they fall prostrate on the ground. They're very much afraid. And this is, but Jesus came and touched them. He came and he touched them. This ability to be like physically present and intimate in the moments of our deepest pain and worry and fear. That in essence is why Jesus was transfigured. To warn them all of the darkness that was to come, all the darkness that you and I face, the difficulty, the sorrow, the grief, the struggle, the ways that we feel disconnected from God, the ways that we have problems with our finances, with our spiritual life, with our spouses, with our friends, all of the things that encompass life, all the things that could be seeds and sources of doubt for you and I. Jesus comes there and he touches us. And he says, rise and do not be afraid. He gives us a glimpse of his glory. So when you and I read the transfiguration, it's not just a historical account of something cool that happened 2,000 years ago. It's a reminder to you and I that in our moments of fear, our moments where we realize we have to take up our cross, when suffering might be on the table, persecution might be coming, or it's happening to us now, that Jesus will meet us there. He will touch us there. He will tell us to rise and to not be afraid. And he will remind us of the glory that is promised especially if we're not experiencing it right now. He reminds us of the glory that is promised. And so my takeaway, and I pray a takeaway for you, is for me to think about all of the ways in my life where I'm doubtful, where I'm worried, where I'm anxious, where I doubt the glory of God, and to be reminded in this moment that even in the midst of their struggle, their pain, their confusion about what was going to happen, Jesus meets them there. He reveals his glory to them to show them a glimpse of what is to come. And that really is what a life lived in relationship with Jesus Christ in the here and now is like. It's a glimpse of the glory that is to come. It's not heaven, but we're building the kingdom of heaven here. We're having glimpses of what is to come. And when we can remain faithful in those moments of fear, darkness, doubt, and worry, Jesus meets us there. Rise up. Do not be afraid. What are your questions? What are your reflections? What things stood out to you? Gage. When we read this back in Lent, I think we talked about the glorified body. Yes. Is that glory, I don't know if St. Thomas says that, is it the actual glorified body that's being shown? Is it the divinity of Christ? What? Yes, he's saying that it's, it's, he's giving a glimpse of his glorified body. And from this, I think he says that we can glean the characteristics of what our glorified bodies would be. So he gives four characteristics that our bodies, when we are resurrected, they will have impassibility, agility, subtlety, and clarity. And passibility means that we will no longer be able to suffer. Agility means that we will no longer be bound by physical laws and rules. Um, subtlety means we will no longer be impeded by physical obstacles. And clarity means that we will shine. We will be bright, just like he is. So it's not only a prefigurement of the glory that's to come for him, but for all of us. So I think that Thomas Aquinas elaborates in that same section on that. Yeah. Yes. I just really wondered how um, uh, Peter knew that this was Moses and Elijah. Yeah. You know, he would never met him. Yeah. <laughs> and they and and the and the and most of the apostles were were not really well schooled, were they, in the Old Testament? It's not believed that they were. I mean, they would have gone to Torah school. Uh, when they were children, just like everybody else. So they would have at least been 
um, challenge to memorize the Torah. And then when they got to that testing point for the next level of education, some of them may have made it, but they definitely didn't make it to the final, final point because otherwise they would have been formally uh, disciples of another rabbi already. Um, they were told to go back and work for their family trade. So they weren't the best students. We don't know how much of school they completed, but they certainly weren't the scholars at the time. So yeah, it's a wonder as to how they recognize them. There's not like, you know, an ancient equivalent of Instagram where you can just go and look up, you know, you know, oh, that's clearly Moses and Elijah. But there were probably distinguishing features, especially for Elijah. Remember, Elijah, John the Baptist dresses like Elijah. So Elijah wore camel's hair. He, uh, he took, I think, I believe he's one of the people who took a Nazarite vow, the same thing that John the Baptist did where you don't cut your hair. Um, he fed on locusts and wild honey. I mean, he probably looked like a pretty grungy, notable, like that's got to be Elijah or, you know, I don't know who else it could possibly be, you know. And then Moses had some distinguishing features as well, depending on how he's depicted. You know, he had the staff that was given him or the staff of his brother Aaron, uh, the Ten Commandments he could have been depicted with. Um, there could have been certain things in the rabbinical tradition that identified him as Moses that we don't have anymore, that we're not aware of. But they're probably key things, huh? Maybe, yeah, maybe he's tatted up. Who knows? Ancient cultures, ancient cultures practice tattooing. So, yeah, but actually it's forbidden in the Torah that they can't be like those cultures and they can't have tattoos like other cultures do. So probably not. But, yeah, yes? I was going to say there's this idea of the light of glory mm -hmm. that is received upon entering into heaven, which I believe gives them the right, or not the right, the ability to perceive things through the face of God, through the eyes of God. Mm -hmm. And so it would, at least to me it makes sense that upon gazing on Jesus, they gaze upon Jesus first. Yes. They might be able to have that sort of infused knowledge. Sure, for a moment. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. So the what Gage is saying is basically like the like when we die, um, it's believed that when our bodies are glorified, we'll receive our preternatural gifts, meaning uh, immortality, infused knowledge, which means that we'll kind of know things to the best degree that we are capable of and designed to know. And... Um, Innocence. We will no longer have the tendency towards sin. So we'll receive those things back that were intended for us at the beginning of creation. And so what Gage is saying is that when we reflect on the glorified face of God, we're maybe having like a momentary exposure to some of those gifts that infused knowledge might kind of have given Peter, James, and John the ability to just inherently know that's just Moses and Elijah. So who knows? But that's pretty cool. Yeah? Would there have uh, primitive ones, but not ones that were like, I mean, there are cave drawings from this time or things on catacomb walls that would date to near this time. Um, but nothing that would have been that I'm aware of that would have been readily available and like accessible to the point where everyone agreed, like, this is what Moses looked like, or this is what Elijah looked like. You know, we still don't have like nobody, we don't have a, an accurate picture or painting of Christopher Columbus. And he was like, just like 600 years ago. So, you know, add 1,400 more years to that, it's still like difficult to find a lot of these, these depictions or these. We, we rely on written descriptions usually for more ancient characters, unless they were so wealthy and prolific that they had some bust or image made of them. You know, then we just rely on the fact that that's accurate and it wasn't like, you know, hide all of my deficiencies and make me look really good, you know? And then we all think that these emperors looked like super handsome and cut and they were just gross looking in real life. You know, we have no idea really, so. Yeah. Yes. Why three tenths? What's that? Why three tenths? Why three tenths? Yes. So uh, it's a lot of scholars think that Peter here is kind of pointing to the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths happened once a year 
I believe in the fall, like around our September, October time, it was one of the pilgrimage feasts, uh, the three pilgrimage feasts that all Jews had to converge upon Jerusalem to celebrate. And it commemorated the time they kind of lived in tents in the desert, uh, many of which were first erected at the base of Mount Sinai. So what Peter is basically saying here is like, let's celebrate this in a festival according to the tradition in the Old Testament, where we were at Mount Sinai, our ancestors were at Mount Sinai, receiving the law, receiving some new message, and seeing the glory of God on this mountain. He's, try, he's trying to be a faithful Jewish, Jewish guy and say, let's just do the same thing. There's a prophecy in Zechariah, too, about like one day when the king comes, the Messiah, my, Messiah king, all of the people will gather for the Feast of Booths. It's in Zechariah 14. Um, so things like that probably indicate that he's, he's thinking about that feast. And maybe it was the time of year for that feast even. We don't know. Um, another key detail is at the very beginning of this where it says, after six days, and then on the seventh day he went up. The same detail is there for Moses when he ascends up the mountain. It's after six days. On the seventh day he ascends up the mountain, and he stays up there for 40 days or something like that. Um, but the Feast of Booths was meant to be a seven-day feast. And so that might be another detail you know, saying that, like, we want to stay here. Um, the glory of God was in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Uh, it was a tent in the middle of the desert. So Peter, James, and John, maybe, or at least Peter in this moment, maybe wanting to recreate that kind of intimacy with God. Because if you remember, we see all these depictions in the Old Testament of God coming as a pillar of fire, this cloud descending on Mount Sinai. And then when the tabernacle is built, his glory descends upon the tent. And then when the first temple is built, his glory descends upon the temple. And then when the temple is destroyed, his glory leaves. And when they come back from exile, they build the second temple and they dedicate it and they do all the same stuff they did the first time around. And then they wait for God's presence to come and nothing happens. God's presence never returns to the temple. So in, in essence, it's like a bare temple. They don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore either. It was lost during exile. And so there's no kind of, there's no intimate connection to God like there was before. So Peter here is probably hearkening back to remember when we were that close to God that he literally dwelled in a tent among us. And he's trying to recreate that in this moment so that that intimacy with God would continue again. Margo. Um, what did the disciples with Jesus when John the Baptist um, baptized him? Was, there, was that just Andrew or was that... Uh, it depends on the chronology of the gospel that you're in. I believe he doesn't call anyone until after he's baptized, actually in all four gospels. And some of them barely even mention his baptism. Some of them don't mention that it was by John. Um, but yeah, he calls all of them after. However, Andrew and um, Philip were disciples of John the Baptist. So they would have probably been there by happenstance. Uh, and would have seen it, but only because they were there following John the Baptist. There could have been others there, but those are the only two we could kind of guess more for sure than the others. Yeah. Greg? Why are we having this gospel now so soon after we had it in the second Sunday of Lent? It's, I think every year it's the second Sunday of Lent. And so Lent is one of those liturgical seasons that just has its kind of own liturgy confined within it, and it kind of disrupts the flow of ordinary time, depending on when it falls, because it follows whenever Easter falls, which follows the lunar cycle, which is kind of confusing. Um, but this Sunday happens to be the Feast of the Transfiguration. So because it's the day set on the calendar that we just remember the Transfiguration, and it happens to fall on a Sunday, then we read those, those readings. Usually it would fall during the week, 
and we would read them. It wouldn't disrupt kind of the Sunday liturgy, the Sunday liturgical calendar. Uh, but this year, it just happens to, to fall on that day. So it wouldn't normally happen. Yeah, especially to have the exact same gospel account so close in proximity. Yeah, but that's why. Lynn? Was this the only transfiguration of Jesus? The only one in the sequence of events of his life, but we have it recorded also in Mark and in Luke. So it's not the only written account of it, but it only happened once. They just all write about it in different ways. All the details are the same among the three, except in Luke. Luke uh, details what they're talking about. He talks about what Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are conversing about. Here it doesn't say. What Luke says is that they're, they're talking about his exodus that he will make from Jerusalem. So he even is pointing back even more strongly to the imagery of exodus in the Old Testament, about the departure he's going to make in Jerusalem. Uh, so he already knows that. He's already communicating it. Peter, James, and John are overhearing it, but he, overhearing it in the context of Jesus revealing his glory. So the closer they get to this very dramatic, climactic, terrifying moment of Jesus' suffering, they're also having more and more glimmers of Jesus' divinity. That's why the signs in John progressively get stronger and stronger until he raises Lazarus from the dead and can show, I literally have power over life and death. And so the closer he gets to the, the difficult moments and the darker those predictions tend to become, he's also trying to give these glimmers of his glory. This is set apart on its own as like kind of the only real revelation of Jesus showing his, his kind of resurrected level glory to, his, to some of his disciples. But he has kind of glimpses of that power and glory in other ways, you know, leading up to that. Yeah. Other questions, other things that stood out to you? Yeah. Well, if you wanted to show his glory, why not the 12? Why three? Why not the 12? Yeah. Uh, part of it, I think, is the Old Testament imagery. I think he's really trying, Matthew here, at least in this account, um, is trying to paint this image between Moses and the three and Jesus and the three. And Jesus may have been intentional about doing that. You know, so sometimes difficult to tell, was the detail added for a theological reason or was the detail added for an eyewitness reason? Neither of which affect the theology of what's happening. But we have to take into account that the writers wrote things for certain reasons. Matthew wrote from a Jewish perspective to a Jewish audience to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah. So he's, he's emphasizing or arranging things in a certain way to communicate that more effectively. Uh, however, this detail exists in all three accounts. So Mark and Luke aren't as concerned with that Old Testament parallel as Matthew might be. So it's probably more indicative of this was really a choice on Jesus's part. Um, he does this other times. Remember, he takes Peter, James, and John with him when he raises Jairus's daughter. And then he'll take those three with him later when he's suffering in Gethsemane. And he wants them to stay awake with him. Those are the only three times he calls those three away. But it's consistent in all the Gospels. So it's clear that he is trying to set apart from the twelve, these three, for something, something higher, something more important than the rest of the twelve. It's not that the 12 wouldn't be revealed his glory. They had other glimpses, not as clear as this one, and they witnessed it after he died. Um, it may have just been essential enough for in the moment that, from this moment till the moment of his crucifixion, the leadership of Peter, James, and John was so necessary to persist for the rest that he revealed it specifically to them. But that's just speculative. You know, we can't really know. Yeah, great question. Other questions? Or just what stood out to you? What did you like about this? What spoke to you? Yeah? How far do you think the 
is the mountain that they up? So we don't necessarily know what mountain it was. So there's three candidates. Um, Mount Tabor is traditionally the mountain that's attributed. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a church on Mount Tabor called the Church of Transfiguration. Um, and there's even a cave there. That's kind of an ancient cave of uh, pilgrimage uh, where church fathers, church mothers would go and allow, and the Lord would speak to them. Mount Tabor, gosh, if I'm not mistaken, is around 2,000 feet tall. Um, however, many ancient sources report that at this time, there was a fortress built on top of it. So it may not have been a likely place for it to happen. Um, another problem with Mount Tabor, it's a little, it's kind of far from, um, from Galilee. It's not, well, actually no, it's closer than all the other, the other ones are, but it's not as tall and it's, it historically may not have been possible because of the fortress. So then the other one is Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is, I think, 9,000 feet tall, huge mountain. But it's like 12 miles northeast of Galilee. And that's not really problematic until you keep reading. And they come down the mountain, and then they come to a crowd. And there wouldn't necessarily have been a crowd comprised, you'll see later on, of Pharisees and scribes questioning Jesus that far away from Galilee or from Jerusalem. It would have been very strange for them to make pilgrimage in a Gentile area 12 miles northeast of Galilee to do that. So some scholars have kind of... Um, concurred that it's somewhere closer to Galilee. And there is a mount called Mount Meron, M-E-R-O-N, that's around like, it's in the middle of the other two, maybe around 4,000 feet tall, that is like the likely candidate. Um, but historically, it's always been attributed to Mount Tabor. So the point of this story is that it doesn't really matter, <laughs> that the mountain is supposed to represent Mount Sinai. And that's, it's painting a clear picture. That's why it doesn't list which one it is. When all over the Bible everywhere else, it'll tell you exactly what mountain things happened on. So it's more painting a historical picture. Uh, it could have been the Sermon on the Mount, Mount, like, which is not very tall, you know? Um, we don't really know. So, but historically, Tabor, but we don't know for sure. Yeah. Chrissy. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. How did you think it was normal to like see Elijah and Moses and Jesus like shining like the sun, and then all of a sudden you're scared? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, also he's just been entrusted with the future leadership of the church, like right before this. So I don't know if you've ever been kind of put in that position where someone has a vote of confidence in you and you will know, like, I am not skilled for this job. You know, maybe you lied on your resume or something and you're like, I cannot do So I got to like kind of overdo it a little bit. And so Peter might be kind of like on his toes, like, all right, I got to, I've got this. All right. Like they're shining. Let's make tents, you know, like, and just blurts it out, you know. But what I, what I love about what Peter does is that he's willing to at least speak. He's willing to act. And what's interesting about this detail is that he, he offers that suggestion. And then it says, while he was still speaking, this is in verse 5, behold, a bright cloud cast a shadow over them, and from the cloud came the voice that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so to me, like I, this is the other thing that stood out to me, is that when we're like that enthusiastic about following the Lord, even if we're kind of like misguided as to what that will look like, if we make the effort, the Holy Spirit will meet us and redirect us, I think. 
That if we're actually like putting in the effort to do what we think to be good, even if we're not 100% sure of what God wants us to do, but we're trying to discern that, if we make a wrong step, we speak wrongly or whatever it is, like we make this assertion, God will come and meet us and redirect us. And I think that's kind of a lesson here. It's kind of what happens to Peter. Peter makes this assertion, and while he's still speaking, God's just like, okay, hold on. Like, this is my son. Just listen to him. That's the point of this. And I imagine Peter Peter being like, okay, got it. Yeah, okay, good. No worries. I, I was just kidding. I wasn't even serious about the tense. It was a stupid idea. It was James's idea. He didn't want to say it, but, you know. So, you know, but at least he's making that effort, right? At least he's willing to kind of speak out of turn when Jesus makes his first prediction and says, no, like, I won't let this happen to you. And Peter can, and, and Jesus can then correct. At least he's willing to get up in the boat and say, Lord, if that is you, call me out to you. I will walk out to you on the water. He's the only one standing up. And everyone is like, what are you doing? Like, sit down. You know, or they're like, sure, let him do it. He'll look like the idiot. We'll be fine. You know, like, but no one else is the one moving. I think that's such a great analogy for us. Like, oftentimes we wait. We wait for someone else to act or to speak because we're too concerned, like, am I going to misstep? Am I going to say or do something wrong? And am I going to look like, like an idiot? And if we're holding back because of our own desire to appear a certain way in our faith, we're never going to get to where the Lord wants to lead us. We have to be willing to make a misstep instead of making no steps at all. Because sometimes to make the next right step, you just need to make a misstep to get there. And Peter is great at that. So great at that. Like he'll just act and he'll do it. And even if it's a kind of bombastic, clunky kind of way, there's jokes that some people make that like he's called rock because he's a little bit rocky. Like he's kind of not got a lot up here, you know, like um, maybe it was a nickname for him kind of thing as well. But he's willing to kind of be clunky and kind of misstep his way through this so that God can take that energy and that effort and just kind of course correct. But if you're sitting there, I've used this analogy before. If you're sitting in a sailboat in the middle of nowhere, nothing can happen if you don't put your sail up. But if you're facing the complete wrong direction, if you put your sail up, you can just turn it and slowly kind of get back in the right direction. So wrong momentum is still enough to get you to go in the right place. But if you're too afraid to just put your sail up in life, to just make a decision, and too consumed by worry, like, is this right? How is this going to appear? Is everyone going to think I look holy? Is this the right thing to do? And we get caught up in scrupulosity or what other people think of us. And essentially, it's like we're not even putting the sail up. We're not letting the Holy Spirit lead us and take that momentum, even misguided and wrong-stepped as it might be, to direct us in the right direction. It's a whole lot easier to do that to a sailboat going off course than it is for wind to just suddenly move an entire sailboat without its sail up. Other thoughts, other things that stand out, other questions? Yes, Greg? Do you think what might have happened if Jesus Peter didn't speak up? I probably wouldn't have looked as silly, and I think the same thing would have happened. I think the sky would have opened and God would have said the same thing. Because he says this at Jesus' baptism. Now in Matthew chapter 3, I think around verses 15, 16, 17, the, the skies open up and say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Or something very similar. to Not the exact wording, but something very similar. Those two times, there's only one other time where the Son of God is announced, like to Jesus' title, uh, Jesus is called the Son of God in the Gospel of Matthew. And that is, does anyone know where it is? It's when he's on the cross, and he dies, and the centurion looks at him and says, truly, this was the Son of God. 
God the Father the first two times and a Gentile the second time. Never once is it a Jew. Never once is it one of the apostles, one of the disciples, one of the faithful chosen people of Israel. It either comes directly from God or from the unexpected. And that in itself also is another lesson. How do we recognize the identity of Jesus in our life and in the world? We have to look in unexpected places. We have to be willing to listen to Jesus speaking to us in unexpected ways. I think a big lesson this, this has for me is every time I read this is, am I willing to let God surprise me? Am I willing to let God go beyond my preconceived notions or my preconceived expectations of who he is, what he's going to do in my life? Because we all, I know this, I know we all do that. I've talked to enough people to know that we all do the same thing. We put together our 10, 20, 30 year plan and we present it to God in the holiest way we can. And we say, yeah, God, like, let your will be done. But I really want this. So can you please make this happen? You know, we just focus, laser focus on this. Or we pray for God's will, but we make all these decisions without asking him if they're good or not. We say, God, I just want your will to be done in my life. But then we decide where we're going to go to school. We decide what kind of job we're going to have. We decide where we're going to use our gifts, where we're going to live, all of that. Those questions we don't consult the Lord. We just say generally, like, God, let your will be done. In the back of our mind, we're like, as long as it's mine. As long as it's mine. And so am I willing to let God blow past my preconceived notions, my preconceived expectations of what my life is going to look like, of what it means to be holy, what it looks like to be holy? Because it's going to look different. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, like, all of the great tyrants of history look so similar, but the, he says something, but how gloriously different are the lives of the saints? Even though all of them are pursuing the same person, pursuing the same thing, a relationship with Jesus Christ, trying to get to heaven, how gloriously different it looked, all the different paths that they took, all the different gifts that they had, all the different ways God used them. Because they were willing to allow God to blow past their expectations and their preconceived notions of him. We put God in a box all the time. Literally. But he's not confined by that box. He's not bound by a box. So when you go to adoration in the chapel, when the, the Blessed Sacrament is exposed, Jesus is just as present to you as when you go to that chapel and the tabernacle's closed and he's not exposed. He's still there. He's not like trapped, like, man, I really wish I could get out of here and talk to you, but like, the front office has the key and it's locked, you know? It's just, man, I created the whole universe. I really wish I could find that key. Darn. You know, like, that's, Jesus is not bound by these ideas and these plans that we give him and these ways that we think our life should go. So am I willing to blow past my preconceived notions? The, the apostles and the, the disciples, they had all these preconceived notions about who the Messiah was and what he would look like and what that glory would look like when it came finally to fruition. And they thought it was going to be an earthly kingdom, an earthly empire like King David, and it was going to overthrow Rome, and they would be living the glory days of the Old Testament. And none of that happened. And that's why it was so easy to be discouraged and so necessary that Jesus would give a glimpse of his glory so that they would persist. And they would know that even if, we, even if it looks like everything is going wrong, which it did look like that for quite a while, we're still going to persist and be faithful because God has consistently been faithful to us. So what does that look like lived in your life and in mine? Am I willing to let those walls, those structures I've built in my mind, this is what life looks like, this is what holiness and faith looks like, this is what the plan of my future looks like, this is my purpose. Am I willing to let those things come down and let God move freely in my life, direct me freely? Am I willing to make a misstep and maybe look stupid 
Maybe look like I don't have it all together. Maybe let the mess of my life actually spill out and let people see that I'm not perfect. And then let the Holy Spirit direct me where he's going to lead. Because if I'm so concerned with looking a certain way, I'm going to be frozen in fear my entire life. And it will never move in the direction that God wants me. God chose the foolish of the world to shame the wise. That's what scripture says. And according to the standards of the world and the pursuits of the world, every single saint looked foolish. They looked like they were pursuing something that was never going to pay off for them. Poverty, chastity, obedience. It's like the three things everyone in this culture is like looking at the opposite for. They want riches, they want pleasure, and they want to do what they want to do. That's why it looks so foolish to follow the Lord. But how radically fruitful and abundant it can be when we do. Any final questions? We've got a few minutes left. Questions, thoughts, reflections? What stood out to you? I know there's a burning question. I can feel it. Yeah, the Holy Spirit does, so let's see what he has to say. Um, the one other detail about this I'll share and then we can close is that this has also been written by some people to be a prefigurement of the Mass because what it does is it calls to one moment the past, Moses and Elijah, the present moment, and the future glory that is to come. And a lot of church fathers will point to this moment as a prefigurement of the Eucharist, even though bread is never mentioned. It's not one of the traditional symbols like the bread of life discourse, the Passover, the manna in the desert. But this here, it brings together in one kind of eternal now. That's how we sometimes talk about how God is present to us, that he's present to us now, but he's also present to the past now and present to the future now. That it draws all of these moments in time together for this one moment of experiencing God's glory. And I think that can, can also remind us that every single moment in our life is redeemable and it is purposeful. You may look at your past with a lot of regret or a lot of doubt or a lot of wishful thinking. I wish I had known this. I wish I had made this choice differently. I wish I hadn't made that mistake. Maybe you carry around a lot of shame for the things that you did before you knew the Lord or the things that you did after you knew the Lord and you thought you should have been able to know better by now. And maybe you experience God present in your life now. I hope you do. But maybe you get frustrated when you don't. And maybe you doubt whether God's going to be faithful or present to you in the future. Whether he's going to give you what you want, or if you're actually going to have to give up those things. If you think maybe my future won't be fun or fruitful if I follow the Lord. What this reveals to us is in every single time, past, present, and future, Jesus' glory is revealed. He calls together the future glory promised, the past promises of Moses and Elijah and the prophets that would come after, all the promises about the Messiah that echo their names, brings them to this one moment to show that God has lordship over it all. God of the past, God of the present, God of the future. And in your life and in mine, God used and is still using your past to bring about a greater good in your life. God is using you in this moment, desiring to use you in this moment to do something beautiful for him, for his kingdom, to bring abundance into your life, a blessing into your life, and overflow in your life in such a way it brings blessing and abundance to others. And God already has a plan for your future. 
God knew you would be here before the foundation of the world. Generations ago. What blows my mind, think about how many couples needed to meet, get married, and have children for you to exist. All of your ancestors and generations. And if one of them was like, mm, not tall enough, sorry. You would not be here, you know? I won't make the joke. Um, <laughs> never mind. Sorry. That was just for Tanner. Um, <laughs> but think about that. Think about that. All of those ancestors, all of those people that had to come together in order for you to exist. God knew that before the foundation of the world. He knew it. And he still knows it. He's planning eons in the future. Maybe not that long. We want, you know, we want the second coming to happen sooner or later. But he's planning all the way until that moment. And he has been from the very beginning. He knows what he's doing. There's a, a famous quote that I'm going to butcher from Pope John XXIII, where he basically said, like, Lord, I've done the, all, all that I can do. You're in charge. I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> and I think some of just the best advice that you and I can have in the Christian life is just go to bed. God's in charge. Just go to bed. Just let him do what he's going to do. Just go to bed. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this evening, for the gift of this, this study on the transfiguration and all the ways you reveal your glory to us day in and day out. We pray, Lord, as we reflect on this passage and we hear it proclaimed again on Sunday, we would be reminded of the glimmers of heaven that you reveal to us each day. We would be reminded of the ways you have worked in the past, you are working in our lives now, and you promise to work in the future. Help us to not be afraid of the missteps that we might need to take so that you will redirect us to lead us to where you're calling us to be, who you're calling us to be. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear the words that you spoke to your son. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Every time that we encounter you, we would hear those words as well. This is my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. Help us to always rest on the promises of your glory especially in moments of doubt and suffering, because you meet us there, you touch us there, and you speak to us. Rise up and do not be afraid. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.